Hello, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. We're in Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Next week will be the end of Micah. Micah chapter 6, and we'll pick up in verse 1. <clears throat> there it says, Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against His people. Even with Israel, He will dispute. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery and sent before you Moses, Arian, Aaron, and Miriam. My people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him and from Shittim to Gilgal, that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness, and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove her safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but you will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, uh, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed. And in their devices you walk. Therefore I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision. And you will bear the reproach of my people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we uh, consider tonight <clears throat> what is the nature of sin, and Lord, how it is that you uh, hate uh, such pretentious uh, worship, those who uh, seek to draw near to you uh, outwardly with their lips, uh, Lord, going through various uh, outward devices related to worship, yet who have hearts that are far from you as evidenced by their pursuit of sin and wickedness. Lord, may we not be guilty of such treachery. Lord, seeing that all of our deeds are open and exposed to you. Lord, even the very desires of the heart are laid bare before the one to whom we must give an account. That we cannot hide in such uh, deceptive ways or, uh, or, or practice uh, these types of things and escape your notice. Lord, we pray that we would um, love you and worship you from a true heart, Lord, in spirit and in truth. Uh, Lord, that we would want to practice uh, righteousness, to do those things that are pleasing to you, and Lord, to offer to you an acceptable sacrifice of praise. So Lord, teach us tonight that we not walk in these devious ways, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, here in chapter 6, 
the prophet turns again to addressing the sins of the people and the judgment that is coming upon them. We remember in chapter 4 and 5, there was a, a message of hope that was given to the faithful uh, of the future blessing that would be realized in the kingdom of Christ. But now he again turns to address the sins of the people and the judgment that God will bring upon them. And this is the occasion for the writing of the book, right? The prophet was raised up because of uh, the sins of the people. And this was common throughout the course of Israel. Whenever the people descended into this uh, depraved state where sin was increased and iniquity increased and grew worse and worse and worse, that the Lord would raise up prophets who were peculiar or special messengers of God. There were the common messengers, which were the priests and the Levites. They were the ones who were responsible for the daily teaching of the people. Yet, often, as we've seen, there is a corruption in the priesthood as well. The priesthood, the Levites, the teachers, and the officials are in league together, and all of them are practicing wickedness. And when this is the case, because there is no one to address the sins of the people, but rather they are approving of these things, then it is necessary for God to raise up a prophet who is a special messenger sent by God with this purpose of addressing the sins of the people, calling them to repent of their sin and to turn away from it and to walk in the ways of the Lord. And this is what Micah turns to again in chapter 6. Though in these messages, these prophecies dealing with sin, there are also these glimmers of hope and a future redemption and restoration that God will be faithful to His promises and ultimately that He will bring His Christ into the world through the nation of Israel, which is what we dealt with in chapter 4 and chapter 5, especially chapter 5, verse 2, where it announced the birthplace of the coming Christ. And chapter 5 dealt a lot with His kingdom and His ministry and what that would look like. So let's turn then to Micah chapter 6 and we'll begin there in verse 1. It says, Hear now what the Lord is saying. <clears throat> Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Here, the Lord is saying something and He's calling here the prophet Micah to arise and to plead His case. The prophet Micah is like uh, the prosecutor that God has raised up, and he is going to plead God's case against the people of Israel. Right? This is what he is doing. He is the messenger of the Lord. God has a charge. He has a case against his people. And Micah is his representative, his ambassador, who is there on the earth and is going to plead this case and make it known. So the Lord is calling Micah to arise and plead his case because the people are so dull they're not listening. He has to go to the mountains and to the hills, to these inanimate objects, these aspects of creation. God is going to call on creation itself to be a witness against His people and to judge between God and His people and determine who is right and who is in the wrong. And this is what Micah is called to do. Also, calling to the mountains and hills. During this time... These are also places where much of their sin is being committed. They are building shrines on every hill, on every mountain, under every green tree. They have their little temples, their little shrines to their false gods. So these are places that are dens of iniquity as well. And God is calling on these places, the hills and mountains, to testify against the people. And Micah is going to cry out to them. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. 
Jeremiah 2.19 Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve, for on every high hill and under every green tree you have laid down as a harlot. There, every high hill, every green tree. Idolatry was so prominent there in the land of Israel that it is as if in every hill and under every tree there are these shrines where the people go to worship their false gods, to pay homage to those things that are not gods, right? In uh, dereliction of their duty to the Lord. So here Micah is called to go, to rise, to plead the case of the Lord to the mountains and to the hills. Verse 2, listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, will he dispute? Here, the Lord again calls on the mountains and the foundations to be the witness, right? To serve as the jury who will adjudicate between God and his people. God is going to indict them of their sin, a case and a dispute against them. Now, this is what God will do to the people. Now, this is not something that we want to happen to us. We do not want God pleading a case against us, right? For him to take up and accuse us of sin and expose us for our iniquity and why his judgment is upon us. We want the opposite of that to be true, right? Which is what Romans chapter 8 teaches us. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Right? We want God to stand as an advocate for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And those that are hid in Christ, those who have faith in Christ, when the adversary comes to accuse us, and we know that Satan is the great accuser of the brethren, well, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Christ is the one who has justified us, so who can condemn us? No one can make any just condemnation against us, not because we are innocent and without sin, but because our sins have been covered, that they have been paid for through the blood of Christ and the legal demands that were held against us have been satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ and through his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. We want God in the courtroom to stand as our advocate, to have Christ there pleading our case before the bar of God's justice. The wicked, though, have it on the opposite side. The contrary is true of them. Instead of God pleading for them, God is the one rising up against them, accusing them, condemning them of sin before the bar of God's justice. And who can escape this judgment, right? Who can vindicate himself, justify himself against the condemnation of God? No one can, right? No one can do such things. So this is what is true of them, that God is going to let his case be against his people. He has a dispute with them. And therefore, he's going to lay out his case before the mountains and the foundations. Hosea chapter 4, Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hosea 4, 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. 
For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follow, uh, follows bloodshed. Here, again, the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. And then God is bringing forward the evidence to uh, support the case that he has, that they are full of iniquity and sin and violence and evil, and that these are the many things that they are doing. Also in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, this same uh, style or imagery is used of God calling for there to be a judgment between him and between his people. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why then, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Here... The Lord says, what more was there that I could do? He says, judge between me and my vineyard. Whether or not my judgments against them, my actions against them, are these just? Are, am I justified in doing these things to them? Removing their hedge, trampling their walls, right, laying it to waste, doing all these things to them? Well, absolutely he is. What more could he have done? He fulfilled his obligation to the covenant, but they have failed to uphold their end. So this is the case, and this is what Micah is saying as well. Verse 3, My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Where has God failed? Where has He failed to uphold what He has promised to do? What has He done to deserve such treatment, to deserve their rejection, their ridicule of Him, for them to turn away and violate the covenant? God has not failed. They are the ones who have failed. They have not upheld the terms of the covenant that God made with them. We know from Deuteronomy that when God established this covenant, He promised blessings on the course of obedience, and there were cursings for disobedience. God made that very clear to them. Blessings and curses dependent on the behavior, the obedience of the people. And even though in the Old Covenant, it was a type of bondage, right, that the people were under, right? According to Acts chapter 15, verse 10, there the apostle Peter, or the apostles, whenever the uh, council is meeting to determine whether or not they should require the Gentiles to be circumcised or not, there they said, why are we putting a burden upon them that neither we nor our fathers are able to bear? But we believe that one shall be justified by faith. That this is how the forgiveness of sins comes, not through circumcision, not through these rituals and these types of things. However, even though this was the case, 
they still were living under the grace of God. It was still an act of God's grace and love for God to take Israel from among the nations as His own people and to give to them this covenant. Because He didn't do it for the Egyptians. He didn't do it for the Assyrians. He didn't do it for the Babylonians. All of them were without God and without hope, living in darkness for many, many years. He did it with Israel. And He clearly laid out the terms of this covenant to them. And yet they failed in the covenant. God did not fail. God was faithful. He was patient with them. He was long-suffering with them. He maintained His end, but they failed in their own. Just like a husband who is faithful, and if the wife plays the harlot, then the husband has done no wrong. He has upheld his agreement. He has upheld his part of the marriage vow. It is the wife or vice versa. It is the other one who has failed in that regard, who has committed adultery and so brought this violation there upon the covenant. And this is what the Lord is saying. What have I done right, to deserve this? How have I wearied you in what I have required of you? Answer me, he says. Right, what fault is there found in me that you would reject me, that you would turn away from me, that you would give the worship, the love, the devotion that is owed to me, and they're giving it to idols, to false gods, to those things that are no gods at all. Then verses 4 and 5, he gives examples of what God has done for them. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people remember now, what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam son of Beor answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Here, these are examples of God's goodness, His love, His grace, His mercy given to Israel. God delivered them from Egypt, and He did it with His strong, mighty arm. Right? They didn't do anything. God is the one that brought those plagues supernaturally upon the Egyptians so that the Egyptians eventually told the Israelites to leave. And they said, here, take all of our gold and silver. Just leave and get out of this land. And God is the one who delivered them. Did He do that for any other nation? Was there ever another nation enslaved in this way? And God took that one nation from the midst of another nation and then brought them in to their own land, gave them a land that was an abundant land, a prosperous land with houses that they did not build, with vineyards that they did not plant, fields that they did not prepare, wells that were already dug, barns that were already built. All of these things were already there. Cities were prepared for them. All they had to do is what? Go in and take possession of it. And God was the one who fought for them. The Lord did all of this for them. And He raised up for them Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He gave to them leaders, good leaders, right? Godly men and women who led them faithfully out of their captivity and brought them safely into the land of promise. The Lord did all of this for them. And then, remember, he says, what Balak did and Balaam, how they conspired against Israel. They sought to curse Israel, to bring a curse upon them. And yet, what did God do to Balaam and to Balak? Every time Balaam sought to curse them, God made him bless them, right? And a blessing they received. That They did all of this to try to undermine Israel and what God was doing through them. And yet God protected them from the wickedness, the evil from Balak and from Balaam. How they sought to undermine, to oppress them, to harm the people of God. In both cases, 
God was faithful to them, very faithful to them. Also in both cases, how do the people respond to such goodness and kindness from God? Well, when he brought them out of Egypt, no sooner do they get on the other side. Well, they're actually griping a lot while they're still in Egypt. But no sooner do they get across the Red Sea, they have a little bit of thirst and they begin to grumble and complain. They face a little bit of hunger and they grumble and complain and they begin to say it would be better for us if we were back in Egypt. Would that we were still there in Egypt, there by the river, with our kettles there, uh, boiling and, and our pots and all the food that we had there. They're longing to go back to the land of slavery. They also built the golden calf. They uh, uh, twisted the arm of Aaron so that he threw all that gold in there and poof, out came this calf. And then they were playing the harlot with that calf. And all throughout their wilderness wanderings, they're constantly grumbling, complaining against the Lord. And then after God delivered them from Balaam and Balak, well, they still came up with a plan where they tempted them to commit sin, to commit immorality with the Midianite women. And what happened? Many of them committed such immorality and worshiped false gods with them. Even in the early days when their uh, love was new in terms of God taking them as his own people. Like a honeymoon period, already they were playing the harlot in these things. And yet, in spite of all of this, God was faithful to them. And he brought them into the land. He gave to them this land. And yet, over and over and over again, all throughout the course of Israel's history, what are they consistently doing? always disobedient. They always go astray. They are hard-hearted. They resist the Holy Spirit of God, just as their fathers did. This is what they are doing. God was faithful. That's why he's saying, what, what have I done to you? Right? How have I wearied you? Was it wearisome when I delivered you from slavery? Was it a great burden I put upon you when I gave you this prosperous land? When I blessed you with all of these blessings? When I gave you such good and righteous laws? such a good kingdom, such a good administration. I gave all these things to you. What evil thing have I done to you? He's saying that you would turn away from me and give the love and devotion that is owed to me to these false gods. So they have no, they can't answer this. There's no credibility to them. God has done everything for them. He has a charge against them and his charge is a just charge. Verse six, with what shall I come to the Lord? and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious act, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How can a man have the favor and blessing of God? Who is the one that God is pleased with? Right? This is what he is seeking to address. This is the key issue before the people. How can we have the favor and blessing of God? Right? God is telling them that you don't have my favor and blessing right now. You are living in sin, that I am against you. But God's prophets are coming, calling the people's sin out, exposing it, but also with the hope of repentance, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, that if you will turn away from these sins, the disaster that God has announced, it may be averted that God will repent of these things and not do what he has said that he is going to do. Here, this is the key issue. For them, it is the key issue for us. The announcement of sin and judgment, but always with the hope of 
repentance. Repentance for sin. Here he goes and describes what should we bring before God? How should we present ourselves to the Lord? That's the question he's seeking to answer at the beginning of verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? How can a man come before the Lord in a way that is acceptable in the sight of God? Well, here, in beginning in 6b and going through 7, can sacrifices and gifts be used to purchase and secure the favor and blessing of the Lord? Can burnt offerings, can uh, yearling calves, can thousands of rams, can 10,000 rivers of oil, can a person even give his most precious possession, right, his firstborn son as a sacrifice and give this to God and by so doing purchase and earn the favor of God, right? This is what he's saying. And the obvious answer is no, that this is not the key. Though there is, especially under the Old Covenant, there is a place for burnt offerings, for yearling calves, for thousands of rams, for 10,000 rivers of oil. There is a place to present the firstborn. Not that they should be sacrificing their children, but there was the redemption of the firstborn. There was a sacrifice for that by which the firstborn were redeemed. And in so doing, they showed that the firstborn belonged to the Lord. So all of these things, there is a place for them. But in and of themselves, can these rituals, can these outward ceremonies and these outward acts of devotion, are they sufficient in themselves to secure the favor and blessing of God? Simply going through the ritual. But this is the pretense of men. The, uh, the way that men behave, the deception that lies in the heart of men, the hypocrisy of men, is that if they do certain outward acts of devotion outward rituals, that these are the way that we secure the favor and blessing of God. And so long as we do those things, then we can go, we can live in sin, we can do whatever we want, and we have nothing to worry about. And this delusion persists not only in their day, it goes on in our own day as well. There are many people who suffer under such a delusion. Nearly everyone in Oklahoma has been baptized two or three times probably. And if you John, there's 4 million people in Oklahoma, 8 million of them have been baptized in the last five years, right? This is the way it is. And if you ask them, you know, are, are you a Christian? They'll, they'll point to that quickly. Oh, I, I was baptized when I was five years old, right? Or they're a member of a church or, or something else that they, that they latch on to, uh, some heritage, some, some, some outward aspects, outward component that they're putting their hope and their confidence in, regardless of how they're living, they may have blown themselves up in a meth lab and they're still taking hope. That's not hypothetical because we had a former church member that blew themselves up in a meth lab. And in the paper, they plastered it there that they were a member of Morningstar Baptist Church. That's why we changed our name. And no, that, that they put it there and they took hope and comfort that this child who did that died in that way, making drugs, was a Christian and is in heaven because when he was a kid, he was baptized and he was a member of the church. And this goes on all over the place, whether it's Roman Catholicism, whether it's Eastern Orthodox, whether it's Southern Baptist, whether it's Methodist, Assemblies of God, it doesn't matter. This is common to man, this type of deception and understanding that so long as we do certain outward things for God, that we can secure His favor and His blessing through these types of rituals and through these kinds of outward things. Well, none of this will 
satisfy. None of this is sufficient to secure the favor and blessing of God. Verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Here, the folly of verses 6 and 7 is that when people say these things, they're acting as if they're ignorant, as if God hasn't told you what He requires, as if it's some mystery, some, some hidden secret that no one knows about, and we're just throwing uh, darts in the dark, hoping that we hit and something sticks and that we're going to have the favor and blessing of God. He says, I've told you what is expected, what is required of man. Man is without excuse. They know that sacrifices and offerings and rituals in and of themselves are absolutely nothing. That doing them with no desire to repent of sin, no desire to live a godly life, it's useless. It's vain, right? It is folly. It actually increases your culpability and it even increases your sin against God. And yet here the people plead ignorance. But God is telling them, you know what is expected because He has made it so clear. But this is what hypocrites do. They place the focus on external rituals and signs accompanied often with great outward pomp and zeal. They really decorate it up, right? It's like putting lipstick on a pig, right? You really want to put a lot on there so that it looks very beautiful. And this is what they do. Why you see in so many of these churches, you know, especially if you go like to a Roman Catholic church, the real big ones, everything is decked with gold. It has, you know, the, the clothing that the, the priests wear. All of it is an outward show to cover up what is really going on. Because people, when they see these outward displays, the beauty of it that accompanies it, they think, how could something so beautiful, how could it be wrong, right? How could a man dress like that? He must be very holy because look at all of this. And this is what the Pharisees were doing, were they not? Making their robes long, their phylacteries broad, right? Their tassels. They were doing these kinds of things, dressing in a certain way so as to draw attention to the outward performance, to the way that they looked, Right, and the way that they performed these things. When they prayed, they went to the street corner and they cried out aloud in front of everyone. When they gave, they wanted everyone to see it. They wanted these things to be noticed and seen by men. And they, again, often it was accompanied with great pomp and great outward shows as a way of deluding and deceiving the people that what is happening is something that is very pious and very pleasing to God. Yet here, the prophet places the focus not on the outward, but on the inward, right? On the conduct, the behavior of men, the inward realities of Christian virtue, right? Of godly living. This is what God requires. Here he says, he's told you, O man, what the Lord requires, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Here, these are ways of summarizing the whole duty of man before God. All the law and the prophets are summed up in these two commandments. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, might, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. To do justice and love kindness is the fulfillment of the second table of the law. That is the duty to one's neighbor. Do justice and to love 
kindness. This is how we love our neighbor as ourselves. And here it's put in the first place, not because it is more important than loving God, but because this is often where it is most clearly seen the violation of the covenant of God in our relationships with our fellow man and to one another. And then to walk humbly with God. What is that but to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, in might and strength? This is the fulfillment of the first table of the law. And now when he's saying this, of course, Micah cannot be teaching works-based salvation. He's not teaching that if we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God, that if we do that and we really work hard at it and try our best and pull up our bootstraps, that then we will have God's favor and God's blessing. Because what man in his natural state can do justice? What man can love kindness? And what man can walk humbly with God? These things are so foreign to us in our sinful state that they are impossible. No man can ever do these things through his own strength. These must be produced in men by the power of God. And he's simply describing the life of faith, right? The life of faith, which was taught in the Old Testament as well. Hebrew, and Habakkuk chapter 2, the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. We know from Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham was justified not by works, but he was justified by faith. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? That he was justified by faith before the law of Moses was given, before the covenant was made there at Mount Sinai. However, Though he was justified by faith, we also know that his faith was justified by works, or his faith was proven by works, according to James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. And there, Abraham was justified by works, not that his works were the source or basis of his salvation, but rather his works proved the validity, the sincerity of his faith, right? That faith that justifies will always be accompanied with good works. And what are those good works? Summarized in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God. That is a summation of the whole Christian life, the whole duty of man before God, to his neighbor and to his God, to love God and to love neighbor as self. It is the life of faith without which it is impossible to please God. So what he's describing here is faith. It is faith that, rec that is the means by which we are uh, attached to Christ, to His salvation. We're justified by faith in Christ. And then that faith that justifies will be accompanied with good works, with good deeds described here in this way. Now, when that is true of us, when there is the life of faith, when the man is doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God, and then he comes before God with burnt offerings, and then he comes before God with yearling calves, or with thousands of rams, or 10,000 rivers of oil, then is God pleased with those things in the Old Covenant. Not in the New, because we don't do those things anymore, but during their time, then yes, God is pleased with them. But if the faith... And if the obedience is lacking, and yet the people are just doing the ritual, then the ritual in and of itself is no good. It's no good. The most important part is the inward reality. It is the faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. 
So faith is the key to everything in the Christian life. And this is describing here then the life of faith. And this was taught in the Old Testament as well. That without faith, uh, God does not delight in any of these outward ceremonies and rituals. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 Psalm 51, verse 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. There, very clearly, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. Now, when he says that, under the Old Covenant, war sacrifice is required. Were burnt offerings required? Yes, they were required. So he means you're, you're not simply pleased and satisfied with sacrifices and burnt offerings. Not merely satisfied with them. What must come before the sacrifice and burnt offering? What must they proceed from? A broken and contrite heart, O God. That's the true sacrifice of God, is a humble, broken heart over sin. When that is true of the worshiper, and then he brings the sacrifice for his sin, then God accepts it. And it is pleasing in his sight, right? It's pleasing in his sight in that way. Also, Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, Matthew 23, verse 23. Here, this was again common throughout Israel's history, even in the days of Christ, 700 years later, the same issue is being manifested in the scribes and Pharisees. 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. Right? Tithing mint, dill, and cumin... Well, that may have a place in our obedience to God. But if at the same time as doing that, we're neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness, can we then latch on to the fact that we tithe mint, dill, and cumin as the basis for our acceptance before God? That I'm pleasing to God because, look, I'm very meticulous. I get down into the minutiae when it comes to tithing, yet at the same time I'm neglecting the weightier measures of the law. No, you can't neglect these things, right? These things must be true of you. Otherwise, all of this is null and void. So here, again, it is the life of faith that is being brought forward here. Live the life of faith. Be obedient to God, right? Out of a heart that loves God, that wants to please Him and desires to worship Him. And then bring your sacrifices to God and they will be pleasing in His sight. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time. The voice of the Lord is calling to the city, either the city of Samaria or the city of Jerusalem, or likely both of them, because we know that both of these cities were brought forward in chapters 1 and 2 as the focus of the prophecy of Micah. Though These things are true of the whole nation, yet it is the cities that are the source 
for the pollution of the whole nation. Jerusalem in the south and Samaria there in the north. In the north. Well, God is calling out to the city. This is sound wisdom to fear your name. He's saying, listen to me, right? I'm giving you wisdom, understanding. You need to understand these things. You need to arise and awake and listen to the voice of the Lord. God has appointed its time and you need to take these things very seriously, right? Because if not, then destruction is coming upon you. In Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14 says, For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. They are in a stupor, in a state of drowsiness and sleepiness. And he's telling them they need to arise and wake up. I'm calling to you, city, and you need to listen to what I'm saying, because if they continue sleeping on, what's going to happen? The judgment of God is going to come upon them, and they need to arise and wake and amend their deeds so that this judgment might be averted. Verse 10. Is there a, yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales in a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Here, though God has warned them by His prophets... He is going to bring His judgment upon them, right? He has made these things very clear to them. But the message of repentance has fallen on deaf ears, right? He says, is there yet a man in the wicked house along with his wicked treasures? I'm telling you the judgment of God is coming because of, of these things, and yet you still have your wicked treasures in your wicked houses. You're not doing anything about it. You're not changing your deeds. You're continuing to do the same things over and over and over again. In contrast to Zacchaeus, remember what Zacchaeus did? He had wicked treasures as well in his wicked house. But when God opened his eyes and he heard the gospel, he repented of his sin. And then half of his treasure he gave to the poor. And anyone he defrauded, he restored fourfold what he had taken from them. Here, he's calling out to them, and we remember from the early chapters, a lot of what they're doing is they're defrauding people. They're stealing. They're exploiting the people, taking their money, defrauding them in unjust ways, right? Using the law and policy in order to overtax and in order to take advantage of people and deprive the, a man of his house and of his inheritance. And though they are doing these things, and though God is telling them, that they need to repent that this is wickedness and that the judgment is coming, they still have their wicked treasures. They're still hoarding it up and they're continuing to do the same things over and over. It's falling on deaf ears. They have wicked scales, a bag of deceptive weights, right? These ways that they're using to defraud people so that the weights, the scales are always in their favor, right? They say that they're paying this much for a pound of wheat, but they're really uh, not paying for a pound, right? They're getting uh, 1.2 pounds, right? And yet paying them as if they're only uh, getting a pound of wheat. They have these kinds of ways to cheat and to skim this and that. And in doing so, they're de defrauding the people. They're not being honest in the way 
that they're conducting their business. Actually, they do this today as well. Like when you go buy soap, <clears throat> you know, they just take a little bit out of it. And you think you're buying the same amount, but actually you're getting less. You're getting ounces less, and they do that times four million people, and guess what? They make a lot more money, right? And everyone is, is blind. You, you'd think, oh, look, man, this is great. Soap isn't even going up. Boy, you're not getting the same amount. So they do this all the time in our own day as well. They find these ways to cheat, to manipulate, so that the uh, you know, commercial enterprise is always working in their own favor, right? In their favor and against other people as well. Then in verse 12, he calls them the rich men of the city are full of violence. This is why it's so foolish. They're already rich. How much is enough? How much money do you need? When are you going to be satisfied? They have everything that they could ever want. They have plenty of money to maintain their own households, to provide for their families, uh, to leave an inheritance for their children. Most of them probably have this uh, as an inheritance themselves. There's no need for them to keep defrauding the people over and over and over again. And yet, what we often find is that those who love money are never satisfied. They're never satisfied. They always want more and more and more, right? And they will continue to exploit. So it's, it's so uh, foolish because it's completely unnecessary. Everything that they need and everything that they could ever desire is at their fingertips, and yet they want to store up more and more and more and defraud other people so that they can't provide for their families and they can't leave an inheritance for their own children. Verse 13, So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but you will not anoint yourself with oil, and the grapes, but you will not drink wine. God's going to repay them according to what they have done. As it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And in Job chapter 4, verse 8, the one who plows iniquity and the one who sows trouble will reap the same. If you plow iniquity and sow trouble, you're going to reap the same. Well, this is what God is going to do to them. I'm going to strike you down, he says. I'm going to make you sick. I'm going to take everything away from you. And for what reason? Verse 13, desolating you because of your sins. Because of your sins. The Bible gives to us promises of God, and it gives us threats and warnings from God. What Satan wants us to not believe, to not trust, is that the promises, that they are not so good, that they're worth giving up our life for these things. That we should not believe in these promises. And that the threats and warnings are not so severe that they're worth avoiding. That it'll be okay. This is what is commonly the case. The promises are not so good, and the threats are not nearly as severe as God makes them out to be. It's just big talk, right? It's big talk. But doesn't the Bible teach us that the soul who sins shall surely die? That the wages of sin is death. That the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, he said in Genesis chapter 2. And yet there, Adam and Eve doubted. They questioned. They did not believe the promise of God, nor do they believe the threat of God, the warning of God, telling them to avoid 
sin. And this is the same in every generation. No sinner believes that there's going to be punishment for sin. This is why they continue in their course of sin. And yet, here the Lord tells us that desolation is coming specifically because of your sins. Your sins will lead to your desolation. You're going to eat, but you'll never be satisfied, he says. He says, you're going to remove your wealth for safekeeping, but none of it's going to be preserved. Whatever you do to try to secure and preserve all of your possessions, I'm going to undermine you at every turn, right? So that you will have nothing left. All of it is going to be consumed. Even if you do preserve anything, I'm going to give it over to the sword. I'm going to send foreigners that are going to come and plunder your property and all of your wealth that you have stored up in these unrighteous ways Every single sin of it is going to be taken away from you and is going to be given to another. Just as you have defrauded others, so I'm going to defraud and take from you and I'm going to give it to others as well. You're going to sow, but you're not going to reap. You're going to do all the work. The hard work is sowing. That's the difficult part, right? And the farmer sows in hope of what? Of reaping a reward. But if we're not going to reap... Right? If there is no reward for the work, who's going to go out and sow? No, no one is going to do that. And yet here, they're going to do the work of sowing, but they're not going to reap anything. They're going to tread on the olive, do that work. And the reason you tread on the olive is so that you might have the olive oil and you might anoint yourself and receive the blessing, the benefit from all of that work. Well, you're going to tread it, but someone else is going to take that oil and anoint themselves with it. You're going to tread on the grapes and produce wine, but you're not going to drink of it. Someone else is going to drink of those things. So God's going to take all of their wealth and prosperity, all of the work that they've done, they will be deprived of it, and it will be given to another. And all of this is coming upon them because of what? Sin. All because of sin. So we must believe and be convinced that sin does not, it's not worth it. It doesn't pay, right? It deprives you of everything. There is a payday for sin, but it does not give us the pleasures, the benefits that it promises us. Rather, it gives to us desolation, cursing, uh, dis, uh, the disfavor of God. Right? That's what we have to believe and not trust our own senses, our own feelings, what the world is telling us, what the devil is telling us, but rather what the flesh is telling us, but rather what the Word of God says. Then verse 16. The statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed. And in their devices you walk. Therefore I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision. And you will bear the reproach of my people. Here he brings up these two kings, Omri and Ahab, a father and son, who were notoriously wicked kings. Some of the worst. Israel had horrible kings. All of them were wicked in the northern kingdom, but some were even more wicked than others. And these two are two of the worst, two of the worst of all of their kings. And yet what they established, the statutes of Omri, the works of the house of Ahab, these things are not exclusive to Omri and to Ahab. But what they established has been spread throughout the land so that all of the people are walking in the same way as Omri and Ahab. They were the source, right? They were the instigators, 
And through their instigation, this pollution and corruption has spread throughout the land so that they all are observing and living and behaving the same way as Omri and as Ahab, walking in their ways. So is God just in giving them up to destruction? Absolutely. Right, absolutely. His case has been made. And His case is uh, bulletproof, right? There is no cracks there is no, nothing wrong with the charge that God has brought. It has been sufficiently proven. 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings 16. And we'll read verses 21 to 34. 1 Kings 16. Beginning in verse 21, it says, Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and the other half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. And Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He reigned six years at Tirzah. He bought the hill Samaria from Shimmer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shimmer, the owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols." Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and his might, which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab his son became king in his place. Now Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa king of Judah. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundation with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So there, evil, more wickedly than all who were before him, it says of Omri. And then with Ahab, he did even worse than him. This is how bad they were. And this has spread into Israel and even into Judah, right? Because they're in such close proximity, and there's also so much national camaraderie between these two nations that whatever is true of one will often be true of the other, right? That the corruption in Israel doesn't stay in Israel alone, but it also comes down into Judah, and they begin to practice the same things as well. So... This is what they are doing, and this is why God is announcing through the prophet Micah the judgment that is coming upon them that they need to repent. They need to repent of these sins. And so we must remember that we cannot live in sin 
and escape the punishment and judgment of God. Right? We need to repent of sin, believe in Christ, and then do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. That's the path that the righteous should walk upon.